0: So I showed it to the doctor and, well, she said it's smashing.
1: In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about designing for safety. What does it mean to consider vulnerable users in our designs? We talked to expert Eva Pensy-Moog to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help.
0: It's your weekly update.
1: In How to Build an e commerce site with Angular 11, Commerce Layer, and PayPal, Zara Cooper walks us through how to do just that. The site uses Commerce Layer as a headless e commerce API and PayPal to process payments. As more and more customers turn to online shopping, building a good quality e-commerce experience is more important now than ever. Adrian Becky picks up the second part of refactoring CSS, this time focusing on strategy, regression testing, and maintenance. After analyzing CSS and its weaknesses, and management giving the green light to the refactoring project, it's time to get to work. A team needs to agree on the internal code standards and best practices, plan out the refactoring strategy, and outline individual tasks, set up a visual regression testing suite, and a maintenance plan to enforce the new standards and best practices in the future. In How to Build Resilient JavaScript UIs, Callum Hart posits that embracing the fragility of the web empowers us to build UIs capable of adapting the functionality they can offer while still providing value to users. In this article, Callum explores how graceful degradation, defensive coding, observability, and a healthy attitude towards failures better equips us before, during, and after an error occurs. Ariant Verma helps us dive into React with React Children and Iteration Methods. In this article, Ariant looks closely at the use case of iterating over React Children and the various ways to do it. In particular, he takes a deep dive into one of the utility methods, React.Children.ToArray, which helps to iterate over the children in a way that ensures performance and determinism. Oh, yeah! And in the latest in his Frustrating Design Patterns series, Vitaly Friedman looks at disabled buttons. How can we make disabled buttons more inclusive, when do they work well and when do they fail on us? And finally, when do we actually need them and how can we avoid them? Follow along with Vitaly in this article to find out. And that is your weekly update.
0: Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com articles.
1: She's the founder of the Inclusive Safety Project, an author of the book Design for Safety. She's a principal designer at Eight Flight, where she designs and builds custom software and consults on safe and inclusive design strategy. So we know she's an expert on designing technology to protect the vulnerable, but did you know she's the international record holder for the most donuts performed in a forklift truck? My smashing friends, please welcome Eva penzi Hi Eva, how are you?
0: I'm smashing.
1: (laughs) It's good to hear. So uh, I wanted to um, talk to you today about the principles of designing products and, and experiences with the safety of vulnerable users in mind. Um, would it be fair right from the outset to, to sort of give some sort of uh, a trigger warning for any particular subjects that we might touch on?
0: Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Definitely trigger warning for um, explicit mentions of domestic violence, also possibly some elder abuse and child abuse.
1: That's, uh, that's important. So feel free if you uh, worry any of those issues uh, might be triggers for you. Feel free to skip and we'll see you on the next episode. So, frame the conversation for us, uh, Eva. When we're talking about design for safety, what sort of safety issues are we talking about? We're not talking about like interfaces for self-driving cars. It's not those sorts. Of, that sort of safety, is it?
0: Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So when I'm talking about safety, I'm really talking about interpersonal safety. Um, the ways that users can weaponize our products to harm each other. Um, in an interpersonal way. So people who know each other, live together, lots of um, domestic violence from romantic partners, um, but also, you know, parents and children. There's also a bit of um, employers and employees more, more in the realm of surveillance, but um, there's sort of that interpersonal actual relationship required in the um, terms of safety that I'm talking about, as opposed to um, yeah, someone like anonymous on the Internet or some anonymous entity um, trying to get your data, things like that. So,
1: I mean, could it be issues as simple as uh, I think of, you know, every day you see on on social networks um, where there's the ability for different users to direct message each other and how that's supposed to be a helpful little tool to enable people to take a conversation um, off, you know, sort of offline or out of the out of the public. But that sort of thing could also, without the right safeguards, be a vector for, for some sort of abuse control.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely anytime you're allowing users to send any type of text to each other, there's the possibility for abuse. Um, you know, the Facebook messaging is that one's a little more obvious. And I think, well, I would hope that they do have some safeguards in place that they've recognized that, you know, maybe you don't want to see certain messages or want to let someone contact you. Um, But I, one that's really interesting and sort of related that I came across while doing research is a lot of um, like different banking applications or, you know, services like Venmo that let you share money. There's often a space for a message, at least, you know, with Venmo, it's required. Um, Some banks, it's optional, but people will, you know, send like one penny to someone, and then have some sort of abusive message or something really harmful or scary or threatening. Um, and there's there's not really a way for the user receiving those messages to like flag that or to say like I want to block this user because you know why would you want to stop someone sending money from you? And that's a situation where I think the designers simply haven't considered that. You know, abusers are always looking for for ways to do things like that. They're very creative, um, and it hasn't been considered in the design. I mean,
1: we often talk about designing the the happy path, um, where everything is used as it's designed to be used, and the experience goes smoothly. Um, and then, as 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 sort of engineers, we think about um, well how things might go wrong in terms of you know validation failing or APIs being down. But I'm I'm not sure. You know, as an industry, do we have a, a big sort of blind spot about ways the technologies could be misused um, when it comes to considering the safety of our users?
0: Yeah, I absolutely think there's a, a giant blind spot. People are very familiar with these sort of various threat models, like I mentioned, of the sort of anonymous person, you know, harassing you on Twitter, um, you know, different entities uh, trying to hack into, you know, like a banking Uh, companies, data, things like that. Um, But we call it the domestic violence threat model, which is um, super different. And it's one that, you know, most people aren't thinking about. And that's always been the feedback. um, When I did my talk designing against domestic violence uh, in the before times before the pandemic kind of stopped conferences, um, that was always the feedback is people saying, like, I just I had never heard of this. I had no idea. Um, So that's the goal with with my speaking and my book and my work in general is to help people understand what this is and what to do about it, because it is something that's just an enormous blind spot.
1: I think we do have a, a tendency and it's obviously it's, it's dangerous to presume that every user is just like us, um, just like the people who are, who are building the service or product, um, just like us, or just like our friends and our family and the people that we know Um and to presume that everyone is in a, a stable home situation and has full ownership and control of their services and devices, is that's not always the case, is it? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Definitely not always the case. Um, and I think, you know, we might look at our our friends and family and think that everyone is in a good relationship. But um, something that I've, I've found is that definitely, you know, most people who go through domestic violence aren't exactly telling everyone in their life and shouting it from the rooftops. And um, most people just based on the statistics, it's so common, like you probably, you know, do know someone who's been in that situation or is currently in that situation. And they just aren't really talking about it, or they're not maybe sharing the full extent of the behavior. Um, So, you know, in a lot of ways, it's understandable that it's not something people have really thought about in the workplace, because it's not something we think about, in society and life in general and we kind of just we reproduce that in our workplace um so this is you know my work is trying to get us to to talk about it a little more explicitly uh,
1: what what are some of the the things we should be thinking about when it comes to to these considerations you know just yes. sort of thinking about when when somebody else might have access to your account you know, if a partner knows your password um and can can sort of get in you would think that that's product has then been designed to be controlled by one person but now maybe somebody nefarious is accessing it what sort of considerations are there there
0: yeah that's um well so there are so many different things but that is a really big one um i have sort of three main chapters in in my new book are focused on the the three big different like areas where this happens and what you just mentioned um is the focus of one of them about like sort of control and power issues with products that are, you know, sort of designed for multiple people. So things like a shared banking account, um, things like, you know, Netflix or Spotify, um, things like uh, all the sort of different home devices, internet of things devices, um, that are, you know, ostensibly meant for multiple people, but there's the assumption that everyone, is, um, you know, a respectful person who's not, who's not looking to find another way to enact power and control over the people around them. So, um, like a lot of joint bank accounts, um, or, you know, things like a shared credit card service, um, kind of masquerade as a joint account, but really one person has more power. So for example, like this happened to me and it was really frustrating because I handle most of the finances in my marriage and, but when we set up our first joint bank account, like years ago, they set my husband as the sort of primary user, which basically meant that he, it was his, um, like publicly available data that got used to create a security quiz. So when I like log into our bank from a new Wi-Fi network, I have to ask him like, which, which of these streets did you live on when you were a kid? Like they're actually mostly, some of them I can answer. Like I know he's, you know, never lived in California, but a lot of them are actually really good. And I, I have to ask him, even though we've been together for a long time, they're, they're pretty effective at keeping someone out, but it's like, this is supposed to be a joint account. Why is it actually, it's, it's actually kind of just an account for him that I also have access to. So a lot of issues with that, where they're a- allowing someone to have more control because, you know, he could just not give me the answers. And then I wouldn't have access to our finances without having to like, call the bank or go through something and, um, go through a different process. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of different issues with control. And I think whenever you're designing a product that is going to involve multiple users, thinking through how is one user going to use this to control another person? Um, and then how can we, how can we put in some safeguards to that either, you know, making it so that one person doesn't have control if that's not possible, how can we, at least make sure that the other person understands exactly what's happening and knows exactly how to regain power. Um, like, can we give them a number to call, some sort of setting to change, whatever it is? Um, it's all, you know, it gets kind of complicated. I do have a whole process in the book about how, like, what this actually looks like in practice. Um, you know, something a little more specific than, like, just consider domestic violence or just consider who's in control. Um, I don't find that type of Advice super useful, so I do have like a very thorough process um, that designers can kind of put in like on top of their actual existing design process to get at some of this stuff.
1: And I guess where you have these um, account, I mean, account uh, having an account is such a uh, a commonplace concept. You know, we're we're all building products and services that the fundamental building block is okay. We've got a user account, Um, and we probably don't you know even really think too closely about these sorts of issues when setting that up and thinking, you know, is the account different from the people who are responsible for the account? Um, often they're just considered to be one entity and then you have to tack other entities onto it to, to create joint accounts and, and those sorts of things. Um, but also considering the issue of what happens to that account if uh, the, you know, two people go in separate ways, how can that be, you know, split apart in the future? this is that, sort of something that uh, we should be thinking about from the outset?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a really good point you bring up. I think one of the things that I, I feel really strongly about is that when we center the survivors of different types of abuse in our design, we end up making products that are better for everyone. Um, so I did interview a fair amount of people about specifically the financial abuse element, which is really common in domestic violence settings. It's um, The statistic is 99% of people in a domestic violence relationship, there's some element of financial abuse. So it's really common. Um, But I also um, ended up interviewing some people who had, you know, like tragically like lost their spouse Um, person had died and they had a joint account. And that is, you know, kind of like a pretty, it's, it's a very common, sadly like scenario, but it's not something that lots of these products are designed to handle. And it can take like years to actually get full control over a shared account, um, or over, over something like, you know, when my grandma died, she had, she had, you know, a lot of foresight and she had given my dad access to everything. And, but even with that, um, it still took him a long time to get, to actually like get everything squared away because these products just aren't, aren't designed to handle things like that. But if we were to center survivors and think about like, yeah, what does it look like when two people split up, um, and be able to handle that effectively, that would ultimately help a bunch of other people in other situations.
1: We think uh, a lot, I think, about um, the onboarding process and creating creating new accounts and bringing people into a product and then forget to consider what happens when they leave by whatever means, whether they unfortunately die or, you know, how does how does that get rounded off at the other end of the process? I think it's something that, that doesn't get the attention that it uh, could really benefit from. Yeah, we carry sort of phones around in our in our pockets and they are you know very personal devices um and they're often literally the keys to our access to information and finances and um communication um and in a negative situation that could easily the fact that it's such a personal device can become a, a vector for control and, and abuse um i was just thinking about things like you know location services Um, services like Apple's Find My, um, which is great if you've got school age kids and you can check in and see where they are, see that they're where they're supposed to be and that they're safe. Um, And it it is a safety feature in a lot of ways, but that sort of feature can be subverted, can't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because so many of these products are, you know, safety features for kids. Like, yeah, of course, parents want to know where their kids are. They want to make sure that they're safe. And that can be, you know, a really effective tool. Um, I I do think there are a lot of issues with parents sort of overusing these products. Um, you know, like there's I found some cases of um, college students who are still being sort of checked in on by their parents, and um, you know, will get a call if they like go to a party off campus. Like, why are you? Why aren't you in your dorm room? Things like that. So it can it can get to be too much. Um, but yeah you know, for the most part, those are great products. Um, but a lot of people do then misuse those to track adults who are not consenting to having their location tracked. Um, and a lot of times, you know, they either, um, you have to go into the service, like, you know, with Google maps, for example, location sharing, you have to go into it to see that you're sharing it with someone. Um, there's no sort of alert. Um, and, and similar with find my, you know, the, the user, Whose um, location is being tracked does get an alert, but in a domestic violence situation, it's really easy for the abuser to um, just like you know delete the alert off off the person's phone before they can see it, and then you know there's not really another way that that person is going to realize that this is even happening. So um, I think that's a good example of something that you know abuse cases are just not being considered when we're creating things that are ultimately about safety for kids, but. You know, we have to realize that there's there are tons of people out there who are going to use it for not kids in these other settings.
1: And I suppose in a in a uh, relationship, uh, you may give consent for um, your your location to be tracked quite willingly at one point in time. And then you may not understand that that continues and might not be aware that that's still going on um, and you're being tracked without realizing.
0: Yeah. And that's that's a really important thing to consider, because you know, within abusive relationships, it's not like the abuse doesn't start on day one for the most part, you know, abusers um, are, you know, it's usually like a really great relationship at first and then they sort of slowly introduce different um, forms of control and taking power and, you know, removing the person from their support network and this all happens over time, like often over years because if you just started doing this on the first date, most people would be like, yeah, no, I'm out. But once, once there's like, you know, this loving relationship, it becomes a lot harder to just, to just leave, um, that person. So, um, but yeah, a lot of times things that were totally safe to do in the beginning of the relationship are no longer safe, but they, the person has long since forgotten that they shared their location with this person. Um, and then again, there's like not, um, a good way to be reminded. There are, there are some things like, you know, to their credit, Google, um, Google sends an email every 30 days, um, although some people have said that they don't actually receive them that frequently. uh, And some people do. So I'm not sure um, what exactly is going on, but they do send like a summary email with these are all the people who you're sharing your location with, which is really awesome. Um, But I do think, you know, a lot of damage can be done in 30 days. So I would prefer something that's more frequent or even like an omnipresent thing that's letting you know that this is happening or something that's happening more frequently than um, than would be allowed then would enable the abuser to just like kind of delete that notification um so yeah that's but that's a really good point is that consent I, you know and it's a lot of things that come from like sexual assaults um, consent practices I think there's so much relevance for tech like just because you consented to something in the past doesn't mean you consent to it now or in the future but in tech we kind of are like well they consented five years ago so, that consent is just, it's still valid. And that's, that's really not the case. We should be, we should be re like getting their consent again later on.
1: Yes. It, it's a, presents all sorts of challenges, doesn't it? Um, in how these things are designed because you don't want to, uh, put so many road, roadblocks into the design of a product that becomes not useful or in a case where, um, you, you're tracking a, a child and they've not, you know, they've not re-consented that day and all of a sudden they're missing um you know so uh, and they haven't got the uh, the um the service enabled but again you know making sure that that consent is only carrying on for as long as it's truly given um i think you know it's easy enough in a um in a shared document if you're using google documents or whatever to see who's looking at that Um, at that document at that time, all the icons appear of, you know, the avatars of all the different users who are there and have access. Um, You thought those sorts of solutions could work equally well for, um, you know, for, for when people are accessing your location.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think, yeah, it does get, it does get sticky. Like there, there aren't, there aren't a lot of like straightforward, easy solutions with this stuff and the stuff about, yeah, like you want to, like, maybe it's not a great idea to let, you know, your eight-year-olds, you know, give consent every single day because what if one day they're just like, no, or, you know, they mistakenly say no or whatever. And then all of a sudden you can't find them. Like, yeah, that's a real scenario. Um, I think with some of this stuff, it's like, I don't think it's going to be realistic to say like, well, this, you know, this product shouldn't exist or you should get consent every day. But then in those cases, there are still things you can do. Um, like, like telling the person, you know, that this person, um, this other user is can view their location. um, Like, even if there's not a lot that they can do about it, at least at the very least, giving them that information so that they clearly understand what's happening and then can take actions to keep themselves safe. If they're in that abusive relationship um, is going to be really useful. Like maybe now they know, like, okay, I'm not going to take my phone with me when I leave the office. Uh, during my lunch hour to see my friend who, you know, my partner doesn't approve of because she is always very much advocating that I leave the relationship. And he would know that I had, you know, gone somewhere if I bring my phone. But if I just keep my phone at the office, then he he won't know. So, you know, being able to make those types of informed decisions, even if you're not able to necessarily end the, the location sharing, there are definitely other things that we can do that will keep users safe while still kind of conserving the core functionality of the feature or product yes it's it,
1: it it comes down to design decisions doesn't it and finding solutions to difficult problems but first understanding that the problem is there and needs to be solved for um which yeah. i think is is where this conversation is so important in understanding um the different uh, the different ways things are, uh, are used Want to help your team ship websites faster? Netlify is a web development platform with Git-based developer workflows designed for teams to build, host, and manage JAMstack web apps. It supports every modern front-end framework, including Next.js, Nuxt, and Gatsby. One of the most popular Netlify features is the deploy preview. Netlify generates a deploy preview URL for each pull request or merge, so you can see exactly what your work will look like in production. Netlify is now making it even easier to provide and gather feedback on deploy previews. When you share a deploy preview link, your teammate will find a Netlify icon at the bottom left of the browser. The icon will open a drawer that contains a set of reviewer tools for taking screenshots, recording video, or making annotations right inside the preview. All reviewer comments are automatically synced to the GitHub pull request or to productivity tools like Trello. For every review, you'll automatically get helpful information like what browser the reviewer was using and the current version. No more chasing down edge cases or parsing through Slack or email for feedback. It's all versioned and consolidated in the PR. The best part is you can invite an unlimited number of reviewers to your team for free. So you can easily get feedback from everyone, including your content writer, design team, SEO expert and your product manager. Get better feedback, get your team aligned, and ship faster with collaborative deploy previews. Try to stay for free at Netlify.com. That's N-E-T-L-I-F-Y dot We thank Netlify for sponsoring this episode. Increasingly, we have devices with uh, microphones and, and cameras in them. Um, even like plenty of like surveillance cameras in our homes and on our doorbells Uh and you know covert covert surveillance isn't just something from spy movies and, and cop shows anymore is it
0: yeah oh yeah it's it's such a huge problem um and i have uh, yeah i have i have very strong feelings about this stuff and i know like a lot of people are really into these devices and i think that's totally fine um i do think that they're misused a lot for surveillance um i think a lot uh, spouses and you know family members but also a lot of um this is where this is where i think like getting into um stuff with children i to me at least it becomes a little more clear-cut that even children have some rights to privacy and especially when you look at teenagers um you know need a lot more independence and they need space. And and that's it's, there's literally like brain development stuff going on around independence. And um, I think there's ways to, um, you know, like h- help your kids be safe online and make good decisions. And also to sometimes like check in on what they're doing without it being something where you're constantly watching them um, or constantly um, sort of injecting yourself into their lives in ways that they don't want. Um But yeah, the, the plethora of different surveillance devices is kind of just like out of control and, um, and people do, people are using these all the time to, to covertly watch each other or to not even covertly. Like sometimes it's out in the open, like, yeah, I'm watching you. Like, what are you going to do about it? You can't because we're in this relationship where I've chosen to, you know, use violence to keep my power and control over you. So, um, it becomes a really big problem. And um, something that I came across a lot is people, it, it becomes like one more way for the abuser to isolate the survivor away from their support network. So, you know, you can't have a private phone conversation with your friend or your sibling or, you know, your therapist. Um, suddenly there's nowhere in your home that's actually a private space, which has also been a really big, a really big problem during the pandemic where people are forced to be at home. We've seen such a huge increase in domestic violence, um, as well as the tech facilitated domestic violence because abusers have had more time to sort of figure out how to do these things. Um, and, you know, it's a much more, uh, it's a much smaller space that they have to sort of wire up for control. And a lot of people have been doing that. It's been, it's been a really big problem.
1: I I, I would expect that the, um, the makers of, these sorts of, uh, you know, products, surveillance cameras uh, and what have you would say, you know, these are just, we're just making tools here. We don't have any responsibility over how they're used. You know, we can't do anything about that. But would you argue that, yes, they do have a a responsibility for how that, uh, how those tools are are used?
0: Yeah, I would. Um, I would first of all tell someone who said that, you know, you're a human being first before you're, an employee at a tech company, capitalist, moneymaker person, um, you're a human being and your products are affecting human beings and you're responsible for that. Um, The second thing I would say is that, you know, just demanding a higher level of tech literacy from our users is a really problematic mindset to have because it's easy for those of us who work in tech to say, well, you know, people just need to learn more about it. You know, we're not responsible if someone doesn't understand, you know, how our product is being used. Um, but, you know, the the majority of people like don't work in tech and there are still, you know, obviously some really, plenty of really tech savvy people out there who don't work in tech, um, but, you know, demanding that people understand exactly how every single app they have, every single, um, you know, thing that they're using on their phone or their laptop, every single device that they have in their homes, like understanding every single feature and identifying the ways that it could be used against them, like that's such a huge burden. Um, and it might not seem like like a big deal if it's, you know, you're just thinking about your one product, like, oh, well, of course, people should take the time to understand it. But we're talking about like dozens of products um, that you know, we're putting the onus on on people who are going through a dangerous situation to understand, which is just very unrealistic um and and pretty inhumane, um especially considering, you know, sort of what abuse and surveillance and these different things do to your brain. if you're, you know, constantly in a sort of state of um, being threatened and in this sort of like survival mode all the time, you're also, you're not, your brain isn't going to be able to, to fully, to have like full executive functioning over figuring out, like looking at this app and trying to identify like, how is, how is my husband using this to, to watch me or to, um, to control me or whatever it is. So um, I would say that that's, that's a really just honestly like a crappy mindset to have um, and that we are responsible for how people use our products. When
1: you think most people don't understand more than one or two buttons on their microwave, um, you know How can we be expected to understand the capabilities and the functioning of all the different apps and, and, and services that we come into contact with yeah when when it comes to designing products and services, i I kind of feel as a, a straight white English speaking male that i 've got a huge blind spot through the privileged position that society affords me, and I feel very naive. Um, and I'm aware that could leave, uh, lead to sort of problematic design choices in the things that I'm making, uh, are there steps that we can take, um, in a sort of process we can follow to, to make sure that we're exposing those blind spots and doing our best to, uh, step outside our own realm of experience and, um, include more scenarios.
0: Yes. Oh, I have so many thoughts about this. Um, I think, there's a couple things first you know we're all responsible for educating ourselves about our blind spots and you know everyone has blind spots I think yeah you know maybe a, a cis white male has more blind spots than other groups but it's not like there's some group that is going to have no blind spots like everyone has them so I think educating ourselves about and um, is that pro- the different, you know that can be problematic different ways too. that like, our I don't... can be misused and you know I think like it's more than obviously interpersonal safety is sort of my thing that I work on, but there's all these other things too, that I'm also, you know, constantly trying to learn about and figure out like, how do I make sure that the tech I'm working on isn't going to perpetuate these different things. So, um, I really like, uh, design for real life by Sarah Watcher, veteran Eric Meyer is great for inclusive design and like compassionate design. Um, but then also, you know, I've been learning about like, um, algorithms and you know racism and sexism and different issues with algorithms um there's so many different things that we need to consider and i think we're all responsible for learning about those things um and then i also think you know like bringing in the lived experience of people who have who have gone through these things once you've identified like okay you know racism is going to be an issue with this product and we need to make sure that we're dealing with that and trying to prevent it or and and definitely giving ways for people to report racism or what have you, um, one of the things, the example I give in my book is, you know, Airbnb has a lot of issues with racism and racist hosts. And, you know, even just, you know, the study about like, if you have, like, if your photo is of a black person, you're just, you're, you're going to get like denied your requests for booking, um, a a stay are going to get denied more frequently than if you have a white person in your photo. So, um, And I think, you know, me as a white person, um, that's something that I don't think I could just go and learn about and then speak as an authority on the issue. Um, I think in that case, you need to bring in someone with that lived experience who can inform you. Um, And so like hiring a black designer a consultant, um, because obviously we know there's not not great diversity actually in tech. So ideally, you would already have people on your team um, who could speak to that. But I think. But, you know, but then it's so complicated. This is where it gets into, like, do we demand that sort of labor from our teammates? Like, like the black person on your team is probably already going to be facing a lot of different things. Um, And then to have the white people be like, hey, talk to me about traumatic experiences you've had because of your race. You know, like we shouldn't probably be putting that type of burden on people unless, you know, plenty of people will willingly bring that up and speak about it. And I'll, you know, I, I will speak about things, my experience as a woman, but it's maybe not something I'm wanting to do every single day. Um, so in that case, like hiring people who do do that for work um, and then always, you know, paying people for their lived experiences and making it um, as little, making it not exploitative um, in terms of actually compensating people for that. Knowledge and that lived experience
1: and um, uh, I think yeah you're, I think it it really does underscore how incredibly important and um beneficial it is to have diverse teams working on on products, doesn't it it's uh bringing in all sorts of different experiences,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, one of the things uh, that you uh, cover in your book is, in in the design process, is creating abuser and survivor archetypes to help you um, test your features against. Could you tell us a little bit about that idea?
0: Yeah. So this came out of um, wanting to have like a sort of persona-like artifact that would help people understand very clearly like what what is the problem. And this this is something that comes sort of after... The team has done research into the issue and has identified uh, the different um, likely issues when it comes to interpersonal safety um, and can very clearly articulate what those are. Um, And then you make the abuser archetype, which is the person who, you know, is trying to use your product for whatever the harm is. And then the survivor archetype, who is going to be the victim of that harm. Um, And the important thing about these is having the goals um, it's pretty much just like you find a you find a picture, although you don't even need a picture. But it's just articulates um, what the abuse is, and then the person's goals. So you know, if it's someone who wants to figure out where their ex girlfriend lives now, um, because he wants to stalk her, you know, his goal is to, to stalk her. Um, and then the survivor's goal, well, so the sorry the the abuser's goal would be to use use your product. So let's say it's Strava, for example, um, is one of the ones I use as an example in the book. Like I want to use Strava to track down my ex-girlfriend. And then the survivor archetype is saying, I want to keep my location secret from my ex who is trying to stalk me. Um, And then you can use those goals to kind of help inform some of your design and to test, test your product to see like, is there anything about the survivor's like location data that is publicly available to someone um, who's trying to find their location, even if they have enabled all of their um, sort of privacy features. And I use Strava as the example because up until like a few months ago, there was that ability. um, There was something that even if you had put everything to private, if you... um, were running or exercising like nearby someone else using the app for a certain amount of time. It's unclear like how close you have to be or how long you have to be like running. You know, the same street as this other person. It'll like tag them as having appeared in your uh, workout. So that would be an example where the um, abuser was able to to meet his goals. He was able to find his ex in this way. Um, and then you would know like, okay, we need to, we need to work against it and prevent that goal from being successful.
1: And I suppose you can't, uh, you can't think up every, every scenario. You can't, um, work out what, you know, what an abuser would try to do in all circumstances, but by, uh, covering some, some key apparent, um, problems that could crop up then I guess you're closing lots of doors for other lines of abuse that you haven't thought of.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that brings up a really good um, other related point, which is that um, yeah, there's, you're probably not going to think of everything. Um, So then having, having ways for users to report issues and then, you know, being the type of team and company that can take, take those, you know, criticisms or issues that users identify with some grace and quickly, quickly course correcting because there's always going to be things you don't think about and users are going to uncover all sorts of things. I feel like this always happens. So being able to have a way to get that feedback and then to quickly course correct is also a really big part of of the whole process of designing for safety. Is there
1: a, a, a process that um, would help you come up with these potential problems um, you know, say, say you're designing a a product that uses location data. Um, what, what process would you go through to, to think of, uh, the different ways it could be abused? Is there anything that, that helps in that regard?
0: Yeah. So, um, this is, this is something I get more, um, in depth about in the book, but, um, having some research around it first is the first thing. So, You know, there's, you know, with location services is a pretty, you know, easy one, so to speak. There's so many documented issues with uh, location services. Um, There's also been, you know, like academic studies done on this stuff. There's lots of literature out there that could help inform um, the issues that you're going to face. And then the other thing that I suggest that teams do is, after kind of doing this research, is doing a brainstorm for novel abuse cases that are not. that have not been covered elsewhere. And um, the way I usually do this is I have the team do like a Black Mirror brainstorm. So let's like make a Black Mirror episode. Like what's the worst, like most ridiculous, just like anything goes, um, worst case scenario for this product or feature that we're talking about. And people usually come up with some really wild stuff and it's actually usually really fun. Um, And then you sort of say like, okay, let's dial it back. Um, let's, Let's use this as inspiration for some more, realistic issues that we might come across and then people are usually able to identify all sorts of things um, that their product might enable.
1: For people listening who uh, feel like they would really love to champion this area of work within their organization, do you have any advice as to how they could go about doing that?
0: Yeah, so there is a lot of stuff about this in the book about integrating this into your practice and bringing it to your company Um, advice for things like, you know, talking to a reluctant stakeholder who's like only concern is, well, how much is this going to cost me? Like how much extra time is this going to take? Um, being able to give really explicit answers about things like that, um, is really useful. Also, um, you know, I have like recordings of my conference talk, which, you know, people usually say, like, I just had no idea that this was a thing. Um, so, you know, you can kind of like help educate your, your team or your company. Um, and then just, and I talk about this in the book too, like, it's honestly, it can be like kind of awkward and weird to bring this stuff up, um, and just being sort of mentally prepared for how it's going to feel to be like, we should talk about domestic violence or we should talk about, you know, uh, invasive child surveillance, um, (laughs) It can be really hard and just weird. Um, one of the pieces of advice I give is for people to kind of talk to a supportive coworker ahead of time who can back them up if you're going to bring this up in a meeting and just help reduce the weirdness. Um, and there are some other tactics in the book, but those are those are definitely the big ones.
1: I would uh, normally ask at this point um, where a listener should go to find out more about uh, the topic, um, but I I know that the answer is actually to go and read your book. Um, We've only really just scratched the surface on what's covered in Design for Safety, um, which is out uh, now, this August 2021, um, from A Book Apart. Um, The book, I mean, for me, it's sometimes an uneasy read in terms of content, um, but it's superbly written and it sort of really opened my eyes to a a very important topic. Um, One thing I really like about all the A Book Apart books is they're small and focused and they're, you know, easy to consume. Um, and so I, I would really recommend uh, that listeners uh, check out the book if the topic um, is interesting to them.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. Um And there is, you know, so the inclusive project.com is the website I have um, to kind of house all of this information. And there's There's a lot of great resources um, in the back of the book for people who want to learn more. But if you just want something, you know, more immediately, you can go to the inclusivesafetyproject.com and there's a resources page there um, that has like different, you know, sort of articles or studies to look at different people working in related um, spaces to follow on Twitter, um, books to read, things like that. Right.
1: So I've been learning what it means to design for safety. Uh, what have you been learning about
0: lately, Eva? I have been learning about data. Um, I'm reading a really interesting book called Living in Data by Jared Thorpe, um, which is, you know, I thought it was kind of going to be all about different issues with big data, which is such a big thing. But it's actually like an extremely thoughtful, um, much more like interesting approach to like what it means to live in data and just how much data is um taken from us every day and what's done with it um and just data sort of out there in the world it's really it's really interesting and um important and i would yeah i would definitely recommend that book
1: yeah, amazing if you dear listener would like to hear more from eva you can follow her on twitter where she's at epenzimoog and you can find all her work linked from our website at evapenzimoog.com uh, design for safety is published at abookapart.com and is available now thanks for joining us today eva do you have any parting words
0: Please get vaccinated so that we can go back to normal. This is Smashing.
1: And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends.
0: Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food.